0: Hello, and welcome to Screaming in the Cloud, with your host, cloud economist Corey Quinn. This weekly show features conversations with people doing interesting work in the world of cloud, thoughtful commentary on the state of the technical world, and ridiculous titles for which Corey refuses to apologize. This is Screaming in the Cloud. This week's episode is sponsored by Datadog. Datadog's a monitoring and analytics platform that integrates with more than 250 different technologies, including AWS, Kubernetes, Lambda, and Slack. They do it all. Visualizations, APM, and distributed tracing. Datadog unites metrics, traces, and logs all into one platform so that you and your team can get full visibility into your infrastructure and applications. With their rich dashboards, algorithmic alerts, and collaboration tools, Datadog can help your team learn to troubleshoot and optimize modern applications. If you give it a try, they'll send you a free t-shirt. I've got to say, I love mine. It's comfortable, and my toddler points at it and yells, dog, every time that I wear it. It's endearing when she does it, and I've been told I need to leave their booth at reInvent when I do it. To get yours, go to screaminginthecloud.com datadog. That's screaminginthecloud.com slash D-A-T-A-D-O-G. Thanks to Datadog for their support of this podcast. Welcome to Screaming in the Cloud. I'm Corey Quinn. I'm joined this week by Chase Douglas, co-founder and CTO of Stackery. Welcome to the show. Hey, Corey. Glad to be here. (laughs) So it's been a busy week so far, to put it lightly. But before we dive too far into that let's talk a little bit about Stackery. First, what's a Stackery? (laughs) Yeah,
1: great question. Stackery is serverless acceleration software. We really come in and we provide filling for all the gaps in the software development lifecycle as you build your serverless applications. And this goes beyond just the things that you need to build your first Lambda function, build your first API. It's great at that, but it goes into how do you begin to use that smorgasbord of AWS services? Uh, how do you piece them together into real world applications? Uh, how do you collaborate with your team so that they all can work together uh, with a high level of velocity, um, faster than you know? The great thing about serverless is, as a technology, you can build and ship things faster than ever before. Um, but then, when you have a team that actually has the right tools. To do that. It's amazing how quickly you ship just the, the most incredible features, the most incredible products using this this
0: technology. That's a reasonable introduction to it. Uh, that said, in the interest of full disclosure, I've been playing around a little bit with Stackery over the past few weeks. And I've got to say, it's, it's interesting. It's not quite clear to me, I guess, from a perspective of looking at the ecosystem around this uh, entire space, where not, not to call you a framework, but there are something on the order of 15 different frameworks that wind up wrapping around Lambda functions and serverless applications that, that all purport to make it something a human being might be able to work with. What is it that, I guess, makes Stackery different from the direction that most of these things are going in?
1: Yeah, so... Stackery sort of sits on top of the framework. So, you know, today we import serverless application models, SAM applications from AWS. Uh, we import serverless framework applications from serverless.com. Um, we really help with everything above that uh, that framework level. So, as soon as you start to use these frameworks, you might start out with like an API gateway that is connected to a function to do this little hello world app. But when you realize that, well, what I actually need to do is, I need to have this function in my API be able to connect to my database that resides inside of my VPC. Um, and oh, by the way, when I'm in production, it's this VPC and it's this database. Uh, but when I'm in, you know, a a development environment, I just want to spin up new versions of those. You know, how do I manage the passwords to access that database? Uh, you know, you've heard of some of the new integrations with secrets manager this week. Um, you know, how, how do you, parameterize things uh across your environments. Uh and then all of a sudden you end up with this gigantic template that you know you, you thought you were you were doing a, a a simple serverless application. Now this is you know a thousand lines or more of straight YAML. Uh, and this is what leads to to people tweeting about how they become YAML engineers uh, and usually not very happy about it.
0: Um, Job descriptions. Must understand how tabs work. <laughs> Must understand how spaces work. Must yes. be willing to defeat the JSON heretics. Yes,
1: exactly. So, you know, it's, it's, it's this thing where I think a lot of people understand this is totally powerful, this serverless, this serverless paradigm, but the, I need something to help me corral this in, into a useful form. So... We come in and we treat that YAML as sort of assembly language. You know, no one programs processors today like they did back in the 80s with raw assembly routines. And no one even programs with C anymore. Everyone is in a higher level you know, scripted or otherwise, programming language.
0: Meanwhile, someone writing an actual assembly uh, has a single tear fall down their cheek as they listen to this.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, when when uh, when you figure out the assembly instruction for uploading to S3, please let me know. But uh, you know, it, it's all it's all about levels of abstraction because uh, the levels of abstraction really are what empower you to to move quickly. So what Stackery does is. It takes your frameworks, it ingests that, and it understands it. It has an extremely uh, intricate binding model to then give you a visual representation at at a human logical level of your infrastructure that you've defined in your application. So when we were talking about that app that has a function talking to a database within a VPC, you know, VPC alone is like at least 20 different resources under the covers. There's the VPC itself, but then there's subnets and route tables and gateways and, you know, this and that.
0: I still feel like you could wind up taking people who've been working with this stuff for 10 years, sit them down and on front of a whiteboard and say, draw out all the moving parts Mm -hmm. in how a VPC network ties together and still only see about a 20% pass rate. Personally, I think I might be able to get a good seven out of 10 of the various (laughs) moving parts, but it's not, something that I would be confident about to the point where it would be a stake my life on it, which means I'm of course, vulnerable to someone who's incredibly convincing and lying. (laughs) Well, I, you know,
1: we, we try to, uh, we try to play it, um, as we help you build up your infrastructure uh, so that it is using best practices, the the things that are straight out of the AWS. Uh, they've they've got their their cookbooks of you know how to build uh, the the you know best practices with security, uh, you know applications of all kinds of, of types. I'm not sure what the there's a proper name. I don't have it off the top of my head. Um, but as we went through we, we were an advanced tier uh, AWS partner we had to make sure that we uh, we followed every one of their their guidelines uh, and they talk about how to how to do some of these things how to how to provision VPCs in the right way to ensure that traffic uh, is contained and, and like your databases aren't uh, accessible from the internet and so on so we encapsulate all of that into you know, just a, a simple at a at a human level, people tend to understand what's a VPC. Well, it's a way of putting resources into my you know cloud account that aren't going to be accessible outside of this network. But anything I put in that network can act, can talk to each other, and so that's what we at Stackery try to do. We we understand, we ingest, we manipulate all of this YAML uh, goo, and turn it into you know, uh, an interface that humans understand using a a visual diagramming tool. We had um, one of our customers, they sent us a message one day. Uh, They said, we realized we needed to to whiteboard something, some new feature of their product and how they were going to implement it. And and then they realized that uh, it was faster for them to drop into Stackery, drag some new resources around, wire them up, uh, than it was to actually get out the markers and start, you know, marking on the whiteboard, uh, they looked at their existing whiteboard, which was full of other stuff. And they're like, ah, it's not even worth erasing this. Let's just drop into Stackery and just wire it up and then we'll be done with it. Um, so that's kind of the, the speed at which uh, we enable uh, the, the, the customers using Stackery to, to build their serverless applications.
0: All of which makes a fair bit of sense and is definitely something that I think that as we start talking to companies that are dealing with this at a larger, more, shall we say, process mature level, is a definite need. Mm -hmm. That said, that's probably not the most interesting thing to talk about today. (laughs) Yeah, probably not. (laughs) Let's talk about Lambda Layers.
1: Yeah, we're we're super excited about Lambda Layers. We are a launch partner of this this new expansion of Lambda. Uh it, it's really it, it falls into two parts. The first part is as a Lambda function developer, there are times when I want to have a bunch of common code that is used and accessed by a bunch of functions in my application. So a great example is in Stackery itself, as we help you manage your, your templates and your applications, those are all stored in various Git repositories, whether they're on GitHub, GitLab, in AWS CodeCommit. So what we do is in each of our backend functions, they need to be able to run the Git commands. So we compiled a little version of all the, the, the Git commands that we need for our For our backend, and we include that in every one of these functions. well now, with layers, we can create one git layer that includes all this functionality and just slap that in to all of our functions. Uh, this helps us in two ways: the first is it gives us a consistency uh, and, and, a, and a nice management mechanism for all of our functions, but also it means that we don't have to Worry and consider about how we're packaging two different types of code in our functions. You know, Git is a open source. You know, C, Perl. It's actually like a, 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 an amalgam of different programming languages under the hood. It's kind of interesting how it works, uh, but it, it's built one way.
0: I assume that Git was a text-based, massively multiplayer online RPG, but that <laughs> might be my old bias creeping in there.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, it's amazing how much it has grown and changed over time and like it's it's a gargantuan effort. Uh one of the one of the technological uh wonders of the world.
0: Yeah, the final boss is super hard. Yeah,
1: right. Yeah. Uh it's got its own build system and I don't want to deal with that when my functions are all written in Node.js and I just want to run npm install and and get them off and running. So it helps with that, but uh the second The second part of the whole uh, layers, Lambda layers functionality, which is really interesting, is that you can create your own runtime now. So uh, one of the things that we've done uh, as a launch partner, uh, we went and created the thing that people have been asking the most for uh, out of Lambda since the beginning of time. I guarantee that this is by far the most needed Uh, functionality, and that is a PHP runtime. Hold your laughter. Um, Uh,
0: I I tried (laughs) very hard to steer away from language bigotry, but there are days, I have to say, and that that comes not from being able to code my way out of a paper bag in any of them, but from painful years of experience trying to run various different shall we say, interestingly constructed applications in a wide variety of languages in challenging production environments. The lesson I take from all of this is that everything is terrible.
1: <laughs> that is true. That is true. It's a lot of people, they like to rag on different languages, but it's really, it's a means to, to an end. And when we look at the, the proliferation of things like WordPress uh, and other you know, PHP you know, uh, applications, it's one shouldn't you know discount uh, in the 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 value that that's provided to to our society. so you know one of the cool things is uh, we've been able to build a PHP runtime for Lambda using a layer. We published it publicly so anyone can go out and use it for their own applications, and it operates like a, a traditional PHP web server. Uh, when a request comes in and you route it from API gateway to this uh, Lambda function, it's going to interpret your PHP files in the same way that if you were running your your PHP web server at home, uh, it would do. Uh, and then it sends it right back out the door. Uh, so there's this there's this possibility now. Although this is a very you know this is a kernel, a seed of a runtime. There's the possibility now that all of those PHP applications that that we've got on our servers as monoliths or you know in, in other forms, we can now start to think about, oh, maybe we can start to upgrade this, bring it into you know the the modern serverless land, break it down, um, and it's, it's it's exciting what what's now possible with this new uh, lambda runtimes capability.
0: What I'm trying to wrap my head around, and maybe this is a naive question. You have to excuse me. I had to leave uh, through the keynote when they started talking about this stuff because my brain was full. (laughs) The... Again, I am not the sharpest tool in the shed some days when it comes to these things, but it seems to me that running different language runtimes in Lambda, well, yes, that's valuable. Yay, I can run my COBOL monstrosity inside of Lambda functions now, and it lasts 15 minutes, or whatever the uh, time is now.
1: I bet there are many banks out there who would be very happy to play with that.
0: Absolutely, but that feels like it's a one-and-done victory, as opposed to the other components of layers, which (laughs) really feels like more of an ongoing When as native serverless applications continue to grow and evolve, and I'm not sitting here trying to say that there's no value to supporting additional runtimes. If there's one thing that we can always count on Amazon to do, besides giving things ludicrous names, it's meeting customers where they are. And customers do have that need. Right. But I'm curious, from my perspective, as I start looking into this more and more, it's less about running this Ruby thing inside of Lambda and more about being able to go ahead and address the ongoing workflow story of solving the problems of shared dependencies between a wide variety of lambda functions, which until now I have to confess has been terrible. I mean the, the amount of code reuse in my various lambda functions is to be frank with you, shameful
1: yeah, yeah I mean it's it's it, the the runtime piece is kind of exciting and interesting, and everyone gravitates towards their specific thing that they've always wanted to do, uh, but at the end of the day. Uh, you actually, for the most part, don't want to be running your own runtime. You want to leave that up to the cloud service provider, so that they're making sure that you know the Node.js you're using always has the latest security patches, and the same for every other language. And so that really hits at the you know while the the bring your own runtime uh, aspect is is powerful and interesting, the the real key here is is much more around providing these paradigms that that really enable people to to you know build the applications with confidence with consistency uh, with best practices it's really exciting to see Amazon continue to push the push the envelope in all of these ways so
0: you are effectively a subject matter expert in this you've built an entire product company around making process maturity something attainable not just for enterprises but for people with relatively small-scale service applications like I have. Right. To the point where it's not just fit for purpose for enormous companies where you need a team of 50 to wind up deploying it, but also to wind up bringing this to a point where I can do this is a part of my workflow and not hate it. it. It makes sense and it makes me go faster, not slower. So you're in a somewhat privileged position to answer this, despite the fact that, yes, I can walk down the hall and get 50,000 people to weigh in. So do I refactor? all of my existing Lambda functions to leverage this? Do I just do it one by one as I start updating those in the natural fullness of time? Or do I just squash all of my previous code into one giant commit, label it legacy code, like the joke goes, and start fresh from here forward and just treat this as something I use for Greenfield?
1: I, I love the approach of squash it all into a legacy layer and just wash your hands of it. That's that's That sounds... That sounds like the dream realized. Uh, no, actually, one of the things that I think serverless has gotten right and somewhat out of necessity is that if you have to rebuild everything that you already built once before, you're re-architecting everything just to, just to use serverless, then that technology is, is not going to take off. There, there's no one who's going to sit there and say, I want to completely rewrite everything that I already did for the past 10 years just because serverless is the hot new technology. Uh, but instead, serverless really enables the techniques that... Uh, you know, it's, one of the patterns is called the strangler pattern, where you take a, a monolith... And your goal is, over time, to strangle it down and pick pieces off of it. Like an, if it's an API monolith, you're picking off one route at a time and reimplementing it in a different uh, paradigm. So you might take your, your monolithic uh, Ruby application, or Rails application, I should say, and then you start to take a couple of routes at a time and move it into a serverless function. Uh, and now with the, the news today that you've got, you know, Ruby as a as a full-fledged runtime, uh, you know, you're able to do that even easier uh, without having to rewrite your code. Um, I think with layers, you, you'll see people do the same thing is that, you know, where they have a need to share a bunch of code, the next time that they're going to need to go and update that across all of their functions... They're going to go and say, it's, it's time that we go and use this new layers approach. Because the alternative is, when I need to go update that one you know, line of code in all this shared stuff, uh, and now I need to go and copy that all around among all my hundreds of functions, uh, that's, that becomes extremely tedious. So I think it's, it's a matter of you know, this continual evolution of the way that we do software. And as new techniques become available, we adopt them as it makes sense. Well,
0: to that end... Whenever I find myself leaving the, I guess, tech coast, for lack of a better term, and I can tell I've left because I'll sit down and talk to companies about what they do, and they have these ridiculous things like business models and a sense of profit and (laughs) trying to build something sustainable and employees, and they respond very earnestly without a condescending accent. So I, I can tell, oh, I'm out of the bay. And to a number of these companies serverless isn't really a thing yet. Or if it is, it's a toy that they're playing with in some small skunkworks project, which I get. I mean, if you have a massive thing that generates billions of dollars of revenue, maybe being the first person on your block to try the new technology isn't really in your top 10. So, what I'm trying to figure out as I think about this is if I put myself into a place where I was a few years back, uh, by which I mean not that long ago, and I no longer have anything running in Lambda, and I'm approaching it for the first time. This is the, today I learned that there is a thing called Lambda that isn't part of a Greek alphabet or on the name of a fraternity or sorority somewhere. Great. Awesome. Does layers change the way that I approach Lambda from a day one perspective?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I first take a little bit of exception to the, the premise that people, it's only the startups, the, the newer businesses or the newer, newer product lines that are adopting serverless. Um, uh, there's a lot of the industry, both small and large that have found that, that serverless is, is key to where they're going. Uh, you've got companies like Coca-Cola. Nordstrom Matson, which is a gigantic uh shipping like container shipping in the original sense of the word uh company and uh you know these are companies that people would not have thought are your your tech leaders they're they're not uh, on the same tech pedestal as Apple and Google and Facebook, and yet they're the ones finding that Serverless is extremely useful for their types of workloads, uh, whether it's spiky traffic, uh, they're finding it's faster to ship, uh, products of all kinds. So there's really a, a, a wide spectrum of people using this stuff. Now I do think that layers as well, it adds another a, another important key to this this tool belt that enables people to dive in more fully. Uh, It's kind of the recurring theme of all of serverless since it started out in 2014 here at reInvent. The Lambda was announced. The the term serverless wasn't even coined yet. Uh, And over time, there's been this evolution of thought of, oh, well, what, what can this really be used for? And it's an expansion of, oh, if we hook up API gateway to it, now we've got a great way of creating scalable APIs. Oh, and if we hook up Kinesis streams to it, now we've got a great way of streaming and consuming data in a scalable fashion. And oh, if we hook up DynamoDB as streams to it, and oh, if we hook up SQS queues, and oh, if we hook up all these different things, uh, it expands the, the capabilities of what you can do with serverless. I would venture that at this point, about ninety five percent of workloads out there can effectively and and positively be engineered uh, on a, a serverless foundation uh, and that's that's really exciting stuff I think that it's probably going to creep more and more towards ninety eight ninety nine percent the next year or two uh, and we're gonna see a sea change as people move to managed services uh, so they're not they're no longer having to to run you know, clusters of, you know, Docker containers and, and clusters of, of databases. I mean, we even see this now with Aurora Serverless. Uh, it, it's amazing technology in that it's this one thing that everyone kind of assumed, there's no way to make that, you know, horizontally scalable. And while it's not exactly horizontally scalable in the same way that DynamoDB is, uh, it's still providing a capability for uh, easy scaling up and down uh, for a a type of technology that people just didn't even really try to scale in that way uh, before it was released earlier this year.
0: Absolutely. Now, you started that by saying you took exception to the idea of enterprises only not, not playing with serverless and it only being the realm of startups. First, if you take exception to that, better go catch it. Mm-hmm. yeah meanwhile somewhere there 's some developer commuting right now who's driving to work and laughing so hard at that lame joke they almost ram a bridge abutment. My apologies other people on the road <laughs> so I agree with your premise that companies are investigating this in very interesting ways. In fact, this may be one of those weird uh, progressive technologies where enterprises adopt it faster <laughs> than some startups do yeah yep. but when I talk to companies who are doing this and that this may be my own bias based upon who i 'm speaking with they tend to be replacing a lot of back end processes things like cron jobs things that require instantiation and then go away but if it fails or is delayed it's not user facing in the traditional sense right. you know the that small back office uh, market that only has like yeah. how what percentage of the world's gdp running on top of it <laughs> yeah right so, right so i do absolutely agree with what you're saying and i absolutely don't want to come across as if i'm saying that this is just something for the cool kids of sure, tech sure sure the So I I agree with that wholeheartedly. What I'm trying to wrap my head around is, I guess, getting away from my own historical prejudices regarding Lambda, by which I mean, I still think of Lambda as being constrained to five minutes. I still think of it as, oh, that's right, it supports something that isn't Node. And I still think of it in terms of, a very limited subset of its current day features, just because those constraints from my first introduction to it, and even now that those constraints have been relaxed, lifted, and expanded significantly, I don't have to, I still have find it hard to come to it from a new perspective. And I wonder how much that shades my thinking about what's possible with this.
1: Yeah, well, the, you know, there's, there's a couple of things to unpack here. Uh, the first is you, you talked about use cases, that a lot of people have for serverless and lambdas, which is that, that background batch processing offline, you know, not in production, uh, throughput traffic, uh, scenarios. And that's definitely a huge win for serverless, but it's also an onboarding step for organizations where they start to play around with it and they get comfortable of this, with this idea of, I don't need to know about the server that this is running on. Uh, I don't need to know what that is to just do this little batch script. Uh, And it's extremely powerful for individual developers when they know they just want to run this tiny little thing once a day, maybe. But in the past, they've been held up in infrastructure procurement. Uh, they didn't have a server to go put this on. Just It's simple. It's like it's a cron script. I can run it on my laptop. It doesn't use any resources. But if I don't have someone giving me a server to run it on, then I'm still blocked. So it starts to tease into people like, oh, wow, I can do these amazing things that I never was able before. Just as a developer or as a, as a DevOps practitioner, Uh, Even ops people can start to actually cross into the development roles a little bit, the DevOps roles. There's like a a meshing of these roles that serverless enables. Um, But the second thing that you were getting at is, how do I rethink what serverless is and what it means as it's changing over time? And this is something that we're focused on as well. Uh, There are unfortunate realities that certain people who jumped all in on serverless in the very early days, may have done so without realizing all of the sharp edges, both in tooling and in capabilities that have been smoothed out now. So now at this point, those same people might have an amazing experience using serverless tech, but they swore it off two years ago. And so we're working to re engage with those people to be able to understand where they had challenges and you know ensure that they've got a great re onboarding process there's that you know famous gartner um uh what's it called that graph the the um uh, what is it called? The graph of disillusionment. Uh, uh, where, the trough
0: of disillusionment. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. The, yeah. the, the hype, the hype, so the hype yes, curve, wasn't yes, it? Yes, the hype curve, the yes, hype cycle. I'll link to that in the show notes. Yeah. Yes,
1: yeah. the Gartner hype cycle. And, Thank you.
0: I'll, I'll link that in the show notes for sure.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, serverless certainly has had a lot of hype behind it, uh, especially early on. You know, everyone could see the possibility of this, but it wasn't quite easy or or possible to realize all that it was purely capable of two or three years ago. And so, you know, we started on this hype curve. And I think that there are some people who are already into the, you know, heading towards that trough of of disillusionment. Um, You know, we at Stackery, one of our goals is to to help catch people when they're starting to get disillusioned because their existing tools and processes are breaking down uh, and help them get across that, that trough uh, into the zone where actually we're we're extremely productive and happy with this, and it 's everything that that we hoped it would be for our use cases um, that that's what we try and do uh, day out for day in and day out for our customers
0: okay, one more question for you that i'm sure will absolutely get both of us thrown out of any conference for the next two years based upon the fact that someone's going to disagree with this. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like a trivia question, but it's not. Do you think that DynamoDB counts as serverless?
1: That's a really interesting question. I tend to think of serverless as meaning managed servers. Uh, I do not need to figure out how these servers are provisioned, how they are managed from a security perspective. Uh, obviously, I have to figure out IAM credentials and, and permissions, which thankfully Stackery handles for me. Uh, but I don't have to to worry about operating system patches. I don't have to worry about, you know, is this spread out across availability zones? Uh, even with DynamoDB, like you've got global. Replication, So, you know, is this even uh, accessible at proper latencies where I want it to be accessible around the world? That, to me, means serverless. Now, there are some people who want serverless to also mean that it's uh, pay-per-use, not uh, upfront provisioned uh and you know i i'll i'll take and leave based on what i fundamentally understand about how a technology works i would love unicorns and magic ponies uh in my backyard every day but um at the same time that's not what's available in the real world uh as a you know computer engineering background uh, you know engineer I understand what is DynamoDB, how it works. What is uh, Aurora Serverless, uh, how it works uh, at a foundational level. I, I don't understand all the magic and tricks that AWS puts in place to make it work as well as it does. But I still understand how that data is stored, how it's sharded, uh, how it's brought up, and, and that leads me to understand why it has to be provisioned throughput, why it has to be you know scaling that is on demand. Uh, with a, spe- a certain amount of latency built in and hysteresis. So to me, I see it as, uh, you know, you've taken, you know, AWS has taken this technology as far as it's humanly possible, and they will continue to to, to break down the barriers. Uh, but I, I hate to kind of fault them for the fact that, well, this is how database technology works uh, to, to, you know, lay around like, oh, DB is not actually serverless.
0: I had a back and forth discussion about this with Simon Wardley in a situation where he was far too polite to tell me to go away and stop bothering him. <laughs> a trick, always do this in public. The and the conclusion that he, sorry, the, not the conclusion, but the line that he took that I can't really get out of my head because I think it was very poignant, is that it doesn't quite qualify on the simple grounds that it cannot scale down to zero. You're always paying for one write or read unit of capacity. And that's, that's, a, that's a tiny cost that doesn't wind up changing any of the economics of anything other than the smallest toy problem. But it's still a cost. You're always going to pay for storage, sure. But conversely, I'm not paying for a Lambda function when it's not running. Aurora serverless stops. I'm not paying instance hours for it. With DynamoDB, I'm always paying something, regardless of how quiet or non-traffic I make the table. Right. And on the one hand, that does feel like it's pedantry. On the other, I can't shake the feeling that there is something poignant there. And maybe I've just love running from lack of sleep due to Reinvent Week here. But that's where I sit. I'm going to throw this back at you
1: and ask: Do you think Aurora Serverless? is serverless simply because it can scale to zero, even though in most real-world usages, no one's going to let it because it's, uh, it has too long of like a cold start. So does the fact that it theoretically can scale to zero, is that the important part? Or is it important that it has to be able to scale to zero and scale up immediately?
0: That's sort of the, the question I run into. It's it's scaling up, but it's also if I'm not running it or putting traffic to it, there's the assumption that I pay zero for it. Is I, I think a, a fundamental tenet of it. With the obvious caveat of yes, storage will cost money. I don't expect people to store my data and not charge me for it proportionately. That's fair, but I'm, I'm talking about compute and network mm-hmm. perspective mm-hmm. where I don't have to pay for something that is not seeing active use at this instant. Right. And I think that is part of the fundamental tenet that event-driven computing.
1: I, I, in my head, I disagree, and the reason I disagree is simply that if someone, if a valid use case was that I needed to have thousands of DynamoDB tables, and thus I needed them to be scaled down to zero, to because the cost of having thousands of uh, read and write compute units because they must have at least one of each for each of these tables is problematic. If that was a valid use case, I would totally agree, but I tend not to think that uh, you know, this, this use case um, makes sense. It's, you know, you're, you know, the closest you might get is if I've got a thousand developers in an organization. And they've got DynamoDB with auto scaling turned on and a minimum of you know one uh, capacity unit for reading and writing, and every one of those developers has their own environment where they've provisioned this you know uh, table. You know I, that gets close to this use case. Yet even still, if you've got a thousand developers, the percentage overhead of every one of them having their own Single capacity unit uh, tables versus their salary and benefits is minuscule. So to me, it's it's you know it's it, it seems unnecessary to put that restriction in place.
0: That's fair. And to be clear, DynamoDB scales down to I think costing what is it two bucks a month. It it is really it truly really mm-hmm. is who cares money. Mm-hmm. Unless you have 10,000 of them. And I, I guess to some extent, that's where it starts to be... Uh concerning to me. It's not the Mm one-offs. It's the idea that I can scale out something truly massive and have a different and do one of these for every version of a service. But if that starts to incur cost across the board, I very shortly start turns into something where I can't treat it quite the same way. Right. And maybe that's an edge case. Maybe that is so ludicrously down the path that it's not even worth having the conversation. But again, it's one of those things that I start about, and I can't get it out of my head now, for which I once again blame Simon Wardley. <laughs> yeah, it
1: feels to me like um, there, there's, a, there's a puritanical approach to the definition of what is serverless, and there's a practical approach. And I would say that, yep, the puritanical definition of serverless should include that aspect of being able to scale down to zero. But the practical aspect uh, the practical definition of serverless. I don't see that as nece- uh, as being a necessary part of that definition. Uh, I will tell you what I do wish. Uh, you know, if, I, if I'm going to throw out an Amazon wish list, uh, I would love to have a serverless-ish Elastic uh, network gateway for my Lambdas when they're running in a VPC. Um, that's that's to me and obviously everyone's got their own pet uh pet need and everything uh that's the one service i would love to have especially since they don't have um you know tiered offerings for sizes of, of uh nat gateways um that you know with the, the the need for a lot of people to access their resources their existing resources and this really hits at some of the the enterprise use cases uh that we have people you know, come and talk to us about is, you know, I I, I want to have, I want to strangle this monolith. The database is in this VPC, you know, put my functions in there. There's a lot of people who complain about uh, you should never put a, a Lambda in a VPC. It has all, all kinds of overhead, which is not actually true if you manage it correctly. Um, but there's still that cost of like the NAT gateways that, that uh, is, is problematic uh, for people. So, you know, there, there's a, when it, when it comes down to it, I'm hoping that maybe you know, in the next year, next reInvent, even more of these services are, are, are serverless.
0: I think you're right. And I think that we're definitely seeing that trend. <laughs> in other words, you don't see significant time out of keynotes devoted to baseline undifferentiated services anymore. Um, at, at most, you'll see a few things here or there talking about, yes, we've added the 1800 instance, instance family, but I, I don't think that's what's interesting from a perspective of the future of computing. Mm-hmm. And I think that for a keynote at an event like this, it always has to be forward-looking and aspirational. And from that perspective, I think they nailed it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, it's the breadth of services that AWS has, the amazing use cases of what you can do on the cloud. At this point, it it really is quite... It it practically is limitless. Uh, It's more a matter of uh, what do they make easier? What do they make easier from here on out? Uh, Because it's all possible. And that's, that's what's really exciting, that I can do everything in the world netflix is all on amazon and of course they've been that way for years but you know if netflix can do it if you know all these other uh companies can do it uh you know you can do it too without having your own servers sitting in your room uh it's you know it, it's it's mind boggling the power at your fingertips
0: it really is i think it's unlocking an entire world of possibility for companies that until very recently would not have had the capability of even dabbling with this. Now I can spin things up in the course of an afternoon that boggle the imagination, or let's be honest, I could if I were better at working with computers. There's still no uh, service for that. Mm -hmm. And like Werner always says, there's no compression algorithm for experience. Yep. It's so true. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for taking a time out of a very busy week to speak with me today. Yeah,
1: I am glad to do so. It's it's exciting, it's fun. Uh, you know, there's nothing like being at Reinvent.
0: There really isn't. And for those who have not had the pleasure of experiencing Las Vegas for a solid week with 50,000 of your closest friends, <laughs> it it's something that should be experienced once and never again. This is my second year and I'm wondering at this point why I have made the choices that I've made.
1: <laughs> yeah, did you did you bring along your um all the, the medicinal kits that, that they, what I'm doing, this is this is uh, my thing, is uh, all those shots and all those pills they give you when you're going to third world countries, uh, I've asked for the same thing uh, to go to Las Vegas this week.
0: That would have made an awful lot of sense. I, I forgot to get my malaria pills. Yep, exactly, exactly. Some of those buffets are no joke. Nope, nope. <laughs> Thank you once again for your taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, Chase Douglas, co-founder and CTO of Stackery. I'm Corey Quinn, and this is Screaming in the Cloud. This has been this week's episode of Screaming in the Cloud. You can also find more Corey at Screaminginthecloud.com or wherever fine snark is sold.